when we cut off access to a knowledge, the pursuit of knowledge for knowledge's sake, mm -hmm. we are cutting off the potential of our society. So welcome back, everyone, to a very, very special episode of Stuck with David Young. And so I was going to start this today by saying something about how lucky and privileged I am to not have any student loan debt. But my wife has it. And, you know, we're married, which basically means I have it, too. So anyway, today we're joined again by Congresswoman Summer Lee to talk about the impossible albatross that student loan debt has become. How being in so much debt has the power to dictate literally every major decision we make. And why this issue is both highly partisan and highly racialized. And then, Minda Honey, author of the amazing new memoir, The Heartbreak Years, joins us to answer a burning question. Who is the most famous person in America right now? All right, y'all. Let's get it. So joining us again for the second time this season is rising star in the Democratic Party, Congresswoman Summer Lee. Summer, what's good? Ooh, you know, nothing. No, I'm joking. <laughs> everything is good. I'm here with you today. It just makes everything better already. I got to <laughs> That was funny. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just being honest. We got to be honest these days. You know, there's just not enough honesty. You, you know what? I feel like that is one of the the one one of, one of the few positives that have, that have come from like the pandemic and the lockdown and all that. Because I think people are more honest when they have the the you know the regular social lubricating conversations with each other. So like when you ask someone you know what's going on, I think people are like ten percent more likely to tell you the truth than they were four years ago. You know what I mean? Well, you're struggling. Well, you're like treading water. You don't have time for any other noise. Like you're trying to trail water. So if you're if somebody's asking you how you're doing and you gotta make up something, then nobody got time for that these days. Like honestly, yeah, we just like, effort. you know what, let's cut, let's cut the crap. <laughs> it takes a lot of effort. And you know, for someone like me who's already not not great at small talk, one of the life hacks for people who suck at small talk, just repeat back what a person said to you. <laughs> so the next time you're in that circumstance and someone someone's like, Oh, it's such a nice day today, huh? All you gotta do is turn back to them and say, It is a nice day isn't it? <laughs> and that's it. <laughs> just, just repeat. Just repeat it. And then you get your coffee and you go. And then you get your coffee, you go. It's a regular social interaction. This tactic probably works for you. When I tell you that people are coming at me and they, no matter, genuinely, it could be three in the morning. We can just be at a bar. It can be at a funeral. Like wherever we are, people are like, I have to I want to talk to you and I want to talk to you about really, really deep things. And sometimes I'm like, you know what? I get it. Like, look, you might be trying to get in touch with someone like me. You just need somebody. To, you need a sounding board. I get mm -hmm. it. But some days there is no escaping. Like, it's not even small talk. Like, it starts at small talk and then it gets big, big, big talk. Yeah. Yeah. I, I you know, obviously, you know, you're, you're, you're on a much higher platform, you know, right now, Congresswoman. Um, also, the world is the way the world is right now. So people are going to see you, want to talk to you, et cetera. I get that, what you were talking about, particularly from white people in Pittsburgh sometimes. Not all the times, not all the times, but there will be some times where I'll be in line somewhere and someone recognizes me in line. It's like, oh, are you Damon Young? 
yes, I'm a fan of your work. Thank you. And then I think it's going to stop there. Can I take a picture? No, 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 no. <laughs> Not even a picture. It's like, oh, boy, I just I just need to let you know that I hate white people, too. Um, You know, I hate my white skin. I hate Nicole Kidman. <laughs> I hate white piano keys. I'm like, yo, I never said that. <laughs> okay. I never said any of that. I hate myself. I like, yo, yo, I'm, I don't hate. Please. I, I just. I promise you, I'm not, <laughs> I am not engaged in this part of the convo. <laughs> it's like, please. I'm fine with the white piano keys, y'all. Yeah. Yes, me too. I love, I, love, I don't know how to play the piano, but I like hearing the piano played when I'm listening to music. So if you're in the Pittsburgh area and you see Damon Young or you see Summer Lee out and you happen to not be black, <laughs> okay, and you want to approach either of us and have a regular conversation, please do that. You know, hi, how you doing? How's the day? Big fan, all of that. But sometimes like the, the very serious conversation about politics or about race. It's like, yo, I'm just, I'm just trying to get some guacamole. I don't even have the I'm guacamole made yet. I'm just, I'm just here trying to get some avocados so I can make the guacamole later. I don't want to have that serious conversation now. I want to talk. Talking is fine, but like the serious conversation. No, that's exactly it. It's yeah. It, I just don't want to have that right now. So PSA. But call my office and we can have it. Promise. Yeah. Another PSA that um is my editorial duty. To also reveal that, you know, we had some technical difficulties today trying to get on, but it was revealed during this time that Summer Lee also Here you go. has issues clapping. Here you go. Okay. When, you know, she doesn't necessarily clap on a one on, on, on one or two. It's like she kind of claps no, no, no. on a, no, no, on no. a 1.5. I want to hear from the people, you know, whatever you see this, however you see this, when you see this. If somebody says clap on three, right, and then they count down, do you clap? After three? Or do you add a clap? So it's like three, two, one, clap, then clap. How was I supposed to know? Would you have expected the clap? I think that when, when someone clap says clap, clap on three, one, two, then you clap on three. When someone says clap on I three. I did. And then he said clap. There was a clap before okay. that. And like If we if, if the clap wasn't there, we both would have okay. clapped at the exact same time. Okay. At the proper time where black church folks clap. That's when we both would have clapped. Okay, left. Ag- agree to disagree. We're gonna hear from the people. That's cool. <laughs> agree. I'm, 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 you know, I'm, I'm gonna let you slide on this one because again, it's been a long morning. You know, what I mean, um, I'm gonna let you slide. But, but again, if you see Congresswoman Summer Lee in Whole Foods or whatever, wherever she goes to get her groceries, don't ask her about like politics and don't ask her to clap. <laughs> okay. Anything Who y'all else? <laughs> Who y'all gonna believe? Anything else is fine. Just don't ask her to do either of those two things. I wanted to talk to you about student loans, right? Because this is a subject that is that is very near and dear to you. Um, but before we even get there, you know, um, now you went to Woodland Hills High School, which is, um, you know, uh, in the suburbs of Pittsburgh, the eastern suburbs. I went to Penn Hills, which is, you know, somewhat of a rival school. Now, for people who aren't familiar with the Pittsburgh area, Penn Hills and Woodland Hills are not affluent school districts, right? You know, in fact, you know, I think that, you know, um, in terms of like gross income or average, you know, income or whatever, it has continued to go down in both of those districts or whatever over like the last like 20 or so years. So I am not a person who comes from means. Summer It's not a person who comes from means. And so 
I guess that I'm bringing this up because I'm wondering for you how much of that factored into the choices that you made in terms of where to pursue higher education. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy that you framed it that way because the debate around student loan debt is always framed, especially by, you know, Republicans, conservatives who are kind of very loud. I'm, I'm not going to say they're winning the battle, but they really are influencing it. The battle was always about, you know, affluent kids who just want to have their debts expelled, but not working class people as if black, particularly working class, poor folks don't also deserve and go to college. Mm-hmm. We know that the student loan debt burden is disproportionately on black folks, right? Particularly black women. Mm-hmm. So for me, when I was coming out of school, I remember when I was filling out my FAFSA. We all know FAFSA. My first FAFSA that I ever filled out, that was just a tough year for my family, right? My mom was laid off. You know, we we didn't even have a car at that point. She's going to be so mad at me for saying this. So don't let my mom see this because she don't like it. But it's the truth. And I remember that on that particular year, you know, the amount of money that my mom w- was able to put on my FAFSA, you know, for, you know, income was so low, right, that it, it, it barely would have registered. Mm. So that's what I'm coming with when I go to school. Like, I don't have, I don't have a, I don't have a rich family who's subsidizing my education. I have people who are paying for my books and get me a swanky hotel I ain't, or, 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 or dorm. I ain't come with no cars, right? I was just a black girl from the hood who wanted to maybe one day either be Oprah or a lawyer, right? <laughs> The options are so limited. Wherever I would have gone, I was acutely aware that wherever I was going to have gone, I could not have afforded it. There is no school that I could have afforded. Not CCAC, not Penn State where I actually went, none of them. So you knew at that point that you are making a sacrifice one one way or another. There is there is no if and a bus about it unless you have a full ride. I was five foot two. I love basketball. I did not have a full ride <laughs> unless you get that. Like and you are and you are poor and you're black. You're paying for college until you die. So uh, it factored in. But reality is that I also knew that on the other hand is that the, m- the more prestigious the school you go to, the more opportunities you get. Yeah, That's just the reality. People who continue to, o- to act like kids from Harvard, kids from Princeton and Yale and these exclusive Ivies don't have more opportunities are lying to themselves. These kids don't even get grades. Right. They're, they're getting pastel, you know, grades in their classes. Their grades are inflated when they do have them. So people who act like the name of your school, the brand of your school does not matter are lying in black people's faces because they don't want us to succeed. So that was what I went into when I was choosing my school. And you eventually you know, decided to go to Penn State. Now, for someone who wasn't able to afford it, which is most people, which is particularly most black people in America, just are not able to afford what colleges cost. So you have to rely on scholarships. You have to rely on financial aid. You have to rely on grants. And you know, all, all, all the different ways that people can give you money because we, we just do not have enough money for that. And, you know, the point that you made about colleges and opportunity, you know, it, it, and yes, people try to devalue the, the value of a degree, right? And, and yes, you know, having a degree can be successful without one. But the fact remains that having a degree allows you to get into certain doors, get certain occupations, get interviewed for certain occupations that not having a degree just doesn't allow you to do. And so for a black person who comes from somewhere where you don't have any money and you want to eventually be able to make money as a 22, 23, 24-year-old, you probably have to go to college. You know what I mean? You probably have to get that degree. And you're probably going to have to put yourself in debt in order to do that. And so getting back to, you know, your decision to go to Penn State. So how were you able to do that if your family couldn't afford that tuition? 
Oh my goodness. I mean, you know, you what do they say about black mamas? Like, we'll make stuff happen. Mm-hmm. Like, genuinely. Like, my family, and we're still doing this. Like, we just did it with my nibblings who just graduated from college. We'll probably do it with my next one. When, when, when you know, he goes to college. We rely on the community. We rely on, you know, opportunities we didn't know exist. Pell grants, right? Mm-hmm. Thank God at the time that we had more being invested into the Pell Grant program so that, you know, poor black kids can go to college. Um, scholarships, of course. But also, you know, I had a grandma. I had a mom, a grandma, and an older sister who, when they had spare change, mm-hmm. right, their spare change throughout my entire college career from Penn State to Howard Law went to getting me through as comfortably as we possibly could. Right. It was also, you know, your friends, you and your homies, right, coming together. Well, who got a mail? Who got money on their mail cards today? Oh, yeah. Right. <laughs> because sometimes you weren't one who had the money on the mail cards, and sometimes you were. So you had to swipe somebody mm-hmm. in. Right. Even within, you know, the college environment, we were still, you know, hustling. We were still figuring out a way not just to look out for ourselves, but to look out for everybody else. But also, I, I, I just want to say, right, because even when I'm listening to you, and even when we talk about, you know, the different opportunities that come from college, I just wanted to be said in this moment of anti-intellectualism that we're experiencing in our country that if you want to go to college for no other reason than you want to pursue knowledge then that should be a good enough reason for you to be able to access a higher education for you to be able to access a quality education right uh if you want to eventually go and be a tradesman but you also want to go to school and learn philosophy you should be able to do that right when we cut off access to knowledge the pursuit of knowledge for knowledge's sake we are cutting off the potential of our society Right. At a critical juncture in human history. Right. Where this is what we need to you know, we need to invest in education, healthcare, Right. And people, people, mm-hmm. infrastructure. And we're not. So, you know, if you're a black kid and you don't want to make money, but you want to save lives because you just desperately want to be a, a doctor. You can't be a doctor if you don't go to college. Yeah. And there's and there's never been a time. And we had Gene Denby on last week um, to talk about just, you know, the importance of social media literacy. Right. And there's never been a time, I think, where being literate was more important because we are fed so much information from so many different sources, so many different platforms, you know, um, and, and, and it's just be, and being able to discern like the truth from some made up fuck shit is critical. It's a critical skill to have. And you develop that skill by reading. You develop that skill by studying. You develop that skill by being in a community with different people, with people other than you. And now college isn't the only place where you're going to be able to do something like that. But college is a place for that. You know, it's not just for you to get a degree. It's for you to become a more well-rounded citizen. Right. And and again, again, I, I can't stress enough that that college is not the only place that you could do that. Okay. But, but when you send a kid to college, when you send a kid to university, that is one of the hopeful byproducts of his education, of his degree, is that he also learns how to be a better citizen, a more evolved citizen, a more literate citizen. And and as you were saying, to cut off access to that is just it's just making it's intentional. It, and it's dangerous. It's it's a dangerous proposition that, you know, when you lead to a a, a socially and and economically and politically illiterate, you know, citizenship, then people who are at the top, you know, who are making the decisions can continue to make the decisions. You know what I mean? And just feed people whatever because, you know, they don't know. How are they going to know? How are people who didn't do the work, didn't study, 
you know, had access to education cut off, how are they going to know that they're being fed some bullshit? Yep. Objectively, people who have more balanced, well-rounded educational opportunities are less likely to be susceptible to propaganda. Mm-hmm. And right now, we're, where we're living through the, the cult of Trumpism, the cult of white supremacy, and we're seeing that get a new, like kind of go to new levels, you know, in our society, right? Those folks who were cut off from education opportunities, who were cut off from a diversity of perspective and experience are more susceptible to the bullshit that they're being fed, right? When we look at, you're talking about that social media literacy, people who are on Twitter X, whatever we're calling it, who can't discern whether or not what they're looking at is a real source Mm -hmm. or not. Uh, if we're looking at people who are getting articles, even when we think about it, and I'm sorry, I don't want to catch no flack, but even when we think about black folks and how we are a people who have had stripped away the history of self, our identities, our names, our culture, our religion, our, you know, our, our homeland, everything that makes a person who they are, that our, our humanity they've attempted to strip from us. And then our education system doesn't fill that back up, which then makes us seek it anywhere else we go, which is makes us susceptible to believing anybody. That's why that makes you susceptible to charlatans, right? Your, your, your doctor who's what this is. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All those folks are now able to, to grift. They're able to, they're able to get a foothold in communities that because we have stripped them of tools, weapons, in an intellectual war, right? We have now left them vulnerable. Yeah. So, Summer, after you graduate from Penn State, and what's your degree in? Your undergrad? Journalism. journalism. Okay, which, you know, people want to make some money. <laughs> we don't go to journalism. People want to, you know, That's not where we go. want to pay off but the I, student loan Remember debt. I said Oprah or a lawyer? <laughs> okay. And so, I'm, I'm, I'm curious, like, you know, so you're in school and you're in debt, Right. And you decide to be a journalism major. Are student loans and student loan debt a factor at all in terms of your major of choice and your deciding to become a lawyer? Hell yeah. Right. I mean, listen, the, the, the number one trope that we see from people who are opposed to college education, opposed to any sort of racial, just uh contextual, like people who are going to school and they're getting culturally competent education, right? Anybody who's opposed to that, their number one joke is always, uh, you get a degree in uh, underwater basket weaving, mm-hmm. right? Because what they're trying to do is like, like their number one thing is to say that there are some things that aren't worth you spending money on, yeah. right? When we connected the pursuit of knowledge uh, to how much money you can make, college education and knowledge is already built. It's, it's, it's already lost. We are in a losing battle. Uh, but for me, what people don't understand is, is that one, the number one quality you need in law school is the ability to write. Mm-hmm. It's the ability to write. So people who go pre-law, you should probably just go English or, or communications, right? Knowing how to write actually is an incredible skill to have. It is a base skill that you need for everything else. And that's what college is, right? It is amassing base level skills. The ability to learn is an important thing. Everybody don't have the ability to learn, to read for context, things of that nature. But law school is expensive, is expensive. Not only is it expensive, but like when you go to another place, I went to Washington, D.C. for law school, right? D.C. is expensive. So now you got to calculate the education, the education you need and want, but also room and board. You also have to live the the, the living expenses, the cost of the metro, the cost of groceries, the cost of transport, Mm. housing is just out of this world, out of out of reach for anybody. Right. This is not the the cost of a, a Howard law degree and any other law degree 
is out of reach even for rich people at this point. It's important that we note that. It isn't just poor people who can't who can't actually afford this. It's everybody. I took my first loan at 17 years old. I was already in. <laughs> Can you put some numbers on like exactly like how much is like one year of school for yeah. um Howard Law yeah. degree? Well, you calculate it when I went and mind you, I went my first year in 2012. I graduated in 2015. Uh, a one semester of Howard, if you calculate, you know, your room and board, the fact that you need an apartment, the fact that you need, you know, incidentals, mm. all of that, which was kind of calculated in. It was fifty thousand dollars a year. Shit. OK. Georgetown was $50,000 a year before you calculated in room and board oh, wow. and living expenses. Okay. Okay. But I'm telling you, I wasn't going anywhere but Howard. I went to Penn State. I went to Howard because I went to Penn State, right? <laughs> I, went <into> an, <laughs> I went into an environment that was stifling, yeah. right? I'm there. I'm learning. I'm getting my education. But you know what? Black kids can do more than just learn and get their education. We also deserve to be in environments where we're going to be fed. There is one time in your life where you can be in an environment that is you, for you, by you, and just enjoy that. Going to an HBCU is that time. Now, did you have any, did you take any break between um, undergrad and grad? Did you take a year off, two years? Did you work any jobs? Or did you just go straight through? I did. I took three years off. You know, I came out of Penn State in the recession. 2009, I graduated mm-hmm. from Penn State. I Listen, I wanted people to talk about all the, the traumas of the millennials. They're talking about me. <laughs> we come out of one recession, right? We living through another. We live through a pandemic. Just every big milestone that we've had in life has been highlighted by some just outlandish economic catastrophe. So I come out of Penn State in 2009. I can't be Oprah on day one, it turns out. Um, I didn't have a roadmap to being Oprah. Mm-hmm. So I was struggling, and I did. I struggled for a, a long time just trying to figure out what I wanted to contribute in society outside of capitalism, right? I, I think that's a part of my story too, as much, you know, grappling with racialized capitalism in a society and realizing that, you know, even the concept of having a dream job had always felt absurd to me, right? You, you, you need to make money to live, but I'm not living to make money. I'm not living just because I, I want to, you know, give my labor to somebody else. And that was always in the back of my head as I was trying to figure out what is something fulfilling that I can do that I want to mm-hmm. do. And it's something that I've struggled with consistently generations before us right i don't know generation you're in what are you a gen x millennial class i mean no there's a i forgot then there's a very particular name for us it is people who were born between 1977 and 1983 um and there's a very i i i want to say it starts with an x is it zennial maybe zennial i think it's that one you're that though yeah yeah because we we were the last people who 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 grew up without the internet basically like we graduated from high school without the internet and then like my first time getting online was my freshman year in college where i was asked to um one of the assignments in like english class and um was to look up something on a search engine and i was like and i was thinking <laughs> what the fuck is a search engine and so i asked my man who was a sophomore it's like, yo, I need some help with this. I don't like what's the search engine. And he was like, I don't know. It's like, nigga, you've been in school for a whole year. <laughs> like we all in this. <laughs> okay. You don't know what a search engine is either. <laughs> right. Um, my, my freshman year of college was year two. It was either year two or year three of Facebook. Okay. Okay. So social media, I, I came into college at the time where social media was like 
becoming a thing. Yeah, yeah. So you had you. So I'm Very sure you had MySpace. Did you have MySpace? I did not have MySpace. You yo. did I not always, have MySpace. I am always like the. I'm always a holdout. MySpace existed. Black Pan. I wasn't on Black Planet. Okay. I wasn't on MySpace. I was late to Twitter. I was late to Instagram. I was late to Facebook because I just I, I just live my life. I'm all I'm always last. I was late to Scandal. You clap on a one and a, I mean <laughs> I just, you I live you stuff. live like a very divergent life. You clap on a one and a half. I mean you you do. <laughs> I mean, you do things the way no, you we, do we things. We must march to the beat in our heads. <laughs> you know, what I mean, march to the own, march to the beat of your own drummer, and that drummer claps on a one and a half. Like we get it. <laughs> Sometimes you have right? to. Right. And so, um, I like that you brought up the fact that you had a lot of space. You had three years of time between undergrad and and grad school, and that nonlinear path is one that a lot of us have taken. You know, in order to get to our quote unquote dream jobs or whatever. I don't know if what you're doing is your dream job, but you know, it's a, it, you got a pretty good gig right now. Um, and I'm just thinking of the jobs that I had between me graduating from college and being able to write full time where I was a high school English teacher. I was a full-time sub. Um, I was like the, the in-school suspension permanent sub for, for a bit. Oh, that tracks. Yeah. <laughs> I just literally stayed in the room all day I had my T-Mobile sidekick with the kids who were basically in prison. Y- yes, yes, yes. I was I was basically the, the the school's warden for like two months. Then I like worked at an after school program in South Oakland. And then after that, I was um, teaching summer school. And then after that, they made a lot of kids. I don't know if everybody knows. Well, that. when you have a degree in English or you have a degree in journalism, like if you're not writing full time, you either got to go to school or you got to teach. Because there's, there's not there's not a whole lot of. Other I was options. one of those perpetual school people. Mm. Then I did camp counseling. I did that. Like I did that. Like summer camp, yeah. right? Like we, I'm out here leading kids and cheers and chants at the Freedom School. <laughs> yeah, I've definitely like <laughs> the path was definitely not linear. It's so funny because you know what I, I talked about, you know, like social media take it off. So that man, that adds just like another layer of pressure to everything you're doing. So here you are thinking about the fact that you just graduated with your four-year degree and you'll never be able to pay off the loans, right? Because you graduated, so now they're calling you. The interest is accruing. Mm -hmm. And you're looking at your homies on Instagram and they're like traveling the world. Like they're doing these like exotic jobs. Maybe you're not even sure. Like you think they are because people show you what they want you to Mm -hmm. see and the people who are struggling like you ain't posting because we have more sense. And you're now just constantly comparing your path and your journey to everybody else. So every time I talk to people and they're like, oh man, you're you're a congresswoman. You must have been like killing it from forever. I'm like, it's like, nigga. <laughs> you see me now. <laughs> okay. So you graduate from graduate from Howard, right? And what year did you graduate from Howard? 2015. 2015. Right. With, you know, you have the debt from Penn State plus debt from law school. Right. Now I'm just depressed. <laughs> How has your personal relationship with student loan debt affected your, I guess, your political relationship with student loan debt? I talk a lot about how lived experience informs our politics, Mm -hmm. not just our and and our policies, right? Our policies and our politics. When you live something firsthand, right, you just have a different urgency to how you deal with it. Uh, When I hear people who create narratives about student loan debts aren't for black people. I'm like, that's wild. I'm sitting right here. 
Yeah. Right. You can't tell me. You can't convince me that student loan debt doesn't help black people because here I am a black person who would be helped by it. You can't convince me that black the black community is not held back also, not just by student loan debt, but also how student loan debt becomes a deterrent to seeking an education. Mm-hmm. Right. There are so many people who are now getting the message that you shouldn't waste your time going to college because those folks can't afford to pay their loan debt back. You may as well just go this route. You make this much an hour, right? So now it's skewing the entire conversation that we're having within our community about what it is and how it is that we want to live outside of after high school. For me, right, I've been able to pay my student loan debt off like consistently when I first got into the state house. Okay. That was when I was able to like, I'm on top of it. I can pay my student loan debt. My balance has not decreased in the years since 2018 and I paid regularly. Oh, wow. It has not decreased. So when people are, are gaslighting us and they're saying, well, just pay your debt. Well, we are paying our debt. There is no way that we can live with that. We can ever get rid of this debt if it's as high as mine, right? The interest rates are criminal. If this were any other type of loan and it was going to any other demographic of people, we would recognize how it's predatory. A 17-year-old can't, I couldn't get my own bank account. When I was 17 years old, my mom had to come and help me open my bank account. Her name is on my, was on my account. When I was in my first year, I had a speech class where we had an assignment. And I was the only freshman in the class. And I was also the only 17, one of the only 17-year-old freshmen. I couldn't do the final assignment. I had to get parental consent to do the final assignment for my class that year. But I can be, you know, I, can, I can't discharge, you know, my loan debt in bankruptcy that I took out at 17. So even when people were talking about, oh, well, you were grown. No, I wasn't even grown. I was, I was not grown enough to make any decisions for myself, right? Couldn't even go to war at that point. So when we are saying that people like me exist, we're delaying life decisions. We are delaying buying homes. We're delaying uh, making career moves because of our loan mm-hmm. debt. We can't take the the risks that we may otherwise take. There are people who are who are entrepreneurial and they can't get you know monies to start their businesses or or loans because of that burden that they carry. There are people who won't start families because how can you afford to feed you know some new mouths? You can't feed your own, right? You you can't make life decisions because of the student loan debt. My student loan bill right now, and this is on adjusted, is at least $800 a month. Wow. Add that to my mortgage. Add that to my DC rent because we got 11 DC too. Mm-hmm. Then add that to all the rest of the expenses I have and people who let account my money because I got a public salary are now, you know, don't somehow always miss these other things. Now, what if what what would happen? And not just what would happen. Have you ever considered just saying, you know, fuck it. I'm not paying this shit. <laughs> I'm, not, yes. I'm not paying this shit. That's off. my everyday job. I, mean, I go to sleep thinking about that. <laughs> like, Every night. <laughs> I mean, what would happen? And a lot of people what, do. I mean, but what would happen for you, Congresswoman, if you decided to be like, you know what, fuck this shit. I ain't paying this. I'm not paying this off. Man, they would garnish my wages. Okay. <laughs> they sent you in a debt collection. <laughs> they sent you in a debt collection. Your credit score drops. <laughs> you, when you make, when, that's the nuclear option. When you do that, you got to already have your mortgage. <laughs> you got to already have a car that you're going to drive for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not a feasible thing, right? But people do it all the time. There are, there, there are thousands of people who are living in depot, mm-hmm. right? They're just in depot. They cannot afford their loans. Yeah. They have to make the decision every day. Am I just going to live my life? Or am I going to now consistently take this hit? People will be more willing to pay for loans that can actually be paid off. Yeah. We're saying that our loans can't even be paid off. What is now the incentive of us paying? There are people who have paid double what their original loan balance is, you know, to their 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 loan sharks. 
and are still paying and are still paying. That's predatory. But when it's the auto industry, when it's Wall Street, when it's, you know, white corporate executives, when it's a PPP loan, right, our government, our country will bail them out. When it's students, when it's particularly anytime you if you ever want to know when our government won't move is if something benefits black people. Because black people are the largest carriers of student loan debt, moving on student loan debt would mean throwing a life a, a life raft out to black folks, and we know that that is never historically they're never going to do something that's going to throw a life raft out to us. They can they will they'll bail out everybody. We have bailed out every industry. We will not bail out bailing out students. We're not just bailing out the student. We're bailing out the entire community. We're bailing out the family. We're bailing mm-hmm. out our economy. We are allowing people to participate in economic em- endeavors. Trust me, within a month. The same folks who are crying about us not being able to pay our loans back or trying to halt uh, the pause from being taken away, those are going to be the same folks who are going to be writing op-eds next month. You're going to see it. Millennials kill Applebee's. Mm-hmm. Millennials kill mm-hmm. Airbnb. Millennials care the airline. But millennials ain't going to Bali anymore. Like, well, how are we going to go to Bali? I got to pay $1,000 on my student loan debt. You know, and and this is this has been an issue for about as long as I can remember. You know, where you know student loan debt is just is just outrageous, and people are just not able to pay it, not able to pay it off. You know, people having parties when and and, and the rare time that someone is actually able to like pay it off completely, it's almost like you celebrate the same way you do when you just I don't know got married, got married, or you just got a PhD or some other tremendous accomplishment or whatever, and so. I guess what I want to know is like, what are the solutions? Because colleges are getting more and more expensive. So incoming college students are going to be accruing more and more and more and more debt. Yep. You know what I mean? And rages are stagnating. So it's not like people are going to be making more and more money. So what is the remedy for this, like this fucking circus of fuck shit? Yep. So uh, like all the, all the big issues that we have in American society, right? It's a, it is definitely a holistic kind of cyclical thing. Mm-hmm. We got to approach it from every single angle. The first thing is, right, like you say it, first thing is cancel the debt, right? Period. Say it, cancel the debt, free student borrowers, free us till we're free. That is, the, that is the number one thing. The way that we've bailed out these other industries in times of crisis, the bailout is always to allow that industry to be able to, to not just, you know, tread water, but to be able to, to, to thrive mm-hmm. again. Right. To be able to to give back That's what they always say. Right. Oh, well, when we bail out the auto industry, they are now able to give back to the worker, then thus give back to the community. Seeing us that same way as worthy of that same sort of investment and care is the first step is the, is the most important. The second one is what you said. Right. College is inaffordable for everybody. Society does not thrive where only the wealthy can afford access to education or housing or health care or any of these things that are or we consider luxuries instead of basic rights mm-hmm. and basic needs. That's a, that man, that is, first of all, that is just a cultural shift. Every other, what we consider developed country, all the Western countries uh, offer their, their citizenry free college or free education and healthcare, mm-hmm. right? When you invest in healthcare and you invest in education, you are investing in the future of your country. Our country is doing the exact opposite. We're investing more in war. We're investing in jails and prisons. We're investing in keeping people caged, but we're not investing in healthcare and we're not investing in education. So we're investing in, in, in a dying population, right? A, a starving population. And we're going to have to reconcile that, right? The pursuit of being a superpower instead of having a democracy that is lasting. If you don't invest in education, education is the cornerstone of a democracy. You cannot have both. 
so free college is is the second thing, right? Students in this country should be incentivized to pursue uh, educational careers and opportunities. Every day in our committees, the 118th Congress has been nothing but about China, right? We hear about the Communist Party of China every single day. Mm-hmm. I'm on science based and technology. All we talk about is how China is increasingly competitive and how we are falling behind in technology, in AI, in space endeavors, and all of this. And then yet in the same breath, we will argue against making college more accessible. We will argue against making and ensuring that black, brown, indigenous, poor, and working class people can get an education. We can't uh, we can't have it both ways. We cannot have it both ways. The third thing is also we need to fix our public education at the K to 12 level. Mm-hmm. You know, your zip code should not determine the quality of education you have, right? Affirmative action was always doomed to fail because they knew that if they starved a child of uh, of, of knowledge at kindergarten, then by the time they made it to 12th grade, they wouldn't be ready to be competitive in any college anyways. So self-fulfilling prophecy. We need to ensure that every child has access to a quality education from the time that they're born, right, before they even get to college. So I think those are the three things that can absolutely be done or with absolutely within our power, within our power to do. Education is the only thing that is not a fundamental right in this country. Look it up. It's not a constitution at all. Everything you're saying, you know, I, I I feel like these are very common sense solutions. You know, they, they, they're not necessarily solutions that would be easy, but they're like answers, you know, that could lead to some sort of relief, some sort of remedy, right? They're attainable. They are rational. They're reasonable. And we can do it. It's about political willpower and who we value in our society versus who we don't, who's disposable. I was about to say that I have faith in us and doing that. I, I do not. <laughs> right. That would have been a lie. <laughs> right. I think it can't be done. Do I have faith? Do I have hope? Hope is different from faith. Do I, ha- do I have a want, a desire? Yes. That's real. We can acknowledge what's possible while also recognizing the immense barriers yeah. that are in place to achieving it. Right. And being realistic about that. And as you're saying, any social good that is thought to benefit black people, you know, as much as it benefits white people is like, for whatever reason, there's a certain part of the population that's like, fuck that. We would rather, we would rather suffer than for both of us to succeed. You know what I mean? And that is just a fundamental. That's the American story. Yeah, that is a fundamental, like, I, I, it's like, how do you get past that part of it? You know what I mean? Listen, I, I always say when people ask me, you know, the leftists ask, the leftists talk about it. I think that so many people miss, A, it's that race class narrative that so many people miss. But well, why why doesn't America have free education? Why doesn't America have health care for all? Well, when you look at the societies that do have it, they were mostly uh, homogeneous societies when they when they adopted mm-hmm. those policies, right? To to the to the Norwegian, to the Swedish person, to the French, to all these folks, they have a vested interest in ensuring that everybody is well taken care of, is well educated, right? For us, the biggest barrier is that for us to enact society wide, United States wide, those sorts of policy would be us also saying that we value and that we want the black man to also succeed. Summer Lee, thank you. Are we gonna are we, are we gonna clap out? <laughs> we probably shouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want you to hurt yourself <laughs> trying to clap. 
Up next is Dear Damon with the homie Minda Honey. But first, Damon Hates. This episode of Damon Hates is going to be even more specific, even more esoteric, even more nebulous, even more weird than usual. Um, Because, okay, I have quite a few tattoos. I think I have 10. I haven't really counted. I should probably count how many tattoos I have. And they're all on my upper body. And there's some space, there's some real estate, prime real estate on my upper body that I am going to get filled up with tattoos eventually. But the thing that I hate, and this is such a stupid hate, like I'm even mad at myself for, for for thinking enough about this to hate it, but I'm mad at myself because I cannot think of anything else I want to get tattooed on my fucking body. I want to get more tattoos, but I've run out of shit. And, and I know that, you know, I could probably just wait and something will happen. I'll see something. I'll be inspired by something. I'll, I'll write a new book because I already have one of the book titles tattooed on me. But right now at this moment, I have space on my chest. I have space on my back. I even have been considering a neck, not a whole neck, but something that is, you know, neck-ish where it is visible, almost like upper collarbone. And I was thinking about getting something there, but I just can't think of what to do. The last thing I was seriously considering was getting a semicolon. But I didn't learn that the semicolon tattoo represents people who have struggled with, you know, whether or not to take their own lives. And so I don't know if that would be false representation if I were to do that, because I just want to do it because I think it's cool and, you know, I write and shit. And so, again, this hate this week is just me in a space (laughs) where I want to put some permanent shit on my body, but I can't figure out what to do. And I hate this. Minda Honey is an author and critic whose amazing and brilliant new memoir, The Heartbreak Years, is available in stores right now. Minda, was good? Everything. Everything? I love that answer. I have no complaints. Give me three things. Well, you know, my debut memoir, The Heartbreak Years, yes. dropped yesterday, October 1st. I had a very beautiful book launch party here in Louisville. I think I cemented my hometown hero status. So (laughs) that's always a beautiful feeling. Okay. And, you know, this delightful Monday, I get to be on your podcast that, like, all of my exes listen to. So can't wait for them to tune in. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) That's funny. Speaking of exes or people who were soon to be exes, so I had Janae Desmond Harris on last week, you know, Dear Prudence from Slate, and we were talking about how there just seems to be a lot of celebrity breakups, and not just celebrity breakups, but just breakups in real life, friend groups, family, whatever, and how this seems to be like the season for divorce. And then right before we got on, I just saw that Josh Jackson and Jodie Turner have filed for divorce. Do you have any feelings about this couple ending? You know, I'm not upset about it. Like, I think they should be obligated to spread the sexy around. It was too much sexy in one couple. Now we have a chance at more, like, equitable distribution of the attractiveness. (laughs) 
I mean, so there is a sexiness quota for individual couples. Hmm, that's a good question because I feel like typically in couples, as a culture, we like to see people equally sexy, right? Mm -hmm. But there's something about like out of the stratosphere sexy. And I think they also had like crossover episode sexiness happening. So it was like, <laughs> wait a second, you two. Like y'all really like crossed over universes of audiences to put this much sexy in one relationship. We weren't anticipating it. We were never ready for it. And I think this divorce speaks to that. That's a good point. I mean, you never saw any of the Greek gods or goddesses with like husbands and wives. They were just doing their thing. They were by themselves, you know, because you can't have that much power. You can't have that much energy in one household. You have to split the energies. I don't know. Aren't the Greek gods and goddesses more like the Trump family than <laughs> fun-loving celebrities? <laughs> yeah, I mean, we could get into the incestuous nature okay. of all of them, but I think they had separate households. I think they I think they had more modern arrangements where they might have been, you know, fucking or whatever, but they live separately. Okay, we've been going on for too long. Morgan. <laughs> Morgan the producer. <laughs> what what we got this week? Dear Damon, I got into a debate with a friend over this, and now I'm curious to hear your opinion. Who do you think the most famous person in the United States of America is right now? This person either has to be born here or living here currently. Hmm. Is it not Beyonce? Like, I don't think so. Is this a debate? Wait, what do you mean you don't think so? I think it's a debate. I guess fame doesn't necessarily have to mean like approval rating. Sure. Let's just go through the list. Donald Trump, definitely. Beyonce, we'll put Beyonce on the list. Taylor Swift, Barack Obama, Elon Musk. Uh, it's definitely. Like, I don't think my mom knows who Elon Musk is. That's a great point. The rest of the people, if they walked down the street right now, everyone would immediately recognize who they were. I don't know if Elon Musk has that same sort of in-person recognition that the other people do. Am I missing anyone? Any athletes? LeBron James, maybe. Has he reached that status? Michael Jordan? Serena Williams? Maybe. Kim Kardashian? Should we consider Kanye West? Like, if we're going to say Kimmy K. Yeah. I think so if we're just talking to straight fame. Mm -hmm. And fame and infamy matters also. That that's a part of fame. So yeah, so Kanye. Michelle Obama sold like five bazillion copies of Becoming. Oprah. 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 So we have about a good twelve names. So if we're playing famous American Survivor, who is the last person on the island? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, right before I hopped on here, I saw that Beyonce's tour has raised like $4.7 billion or something like that. It's the same amount as the 2008 Beijing Olympics. So I feel like just like right now, she's very mainstream, very top of mind. Like I think people are going to think of her name faster than Michael Jordan's name in this particular moment. I think there are people that we can eliminate. Unfortunately, yeah, I think that there are no athletes that reach this status currently. Like, no one is as big as Michael Jordan was in the 80s or 90s. There's just no current athlete. LeBron probably comes closest, but he's not as big as MJ was. There's no Michael Jackson level of male pop entertainer 
that exists today. I mean, yeah, there's Drake, but he's Canadian, but he's not even that big. He's not as big as Mike was. I think we eliminate Michelle Obama. Really? Yeah. I think that of the two, Barack is more famous. Michelle is more loved. Does someone know who Barack is without knowing who Michelle is? Like, they're like, I don't know that guy's wife's name. Like, <laughs> Again, if we're doing the walking down the street test, I think Barack Obama would be more immediately recognizable by the general population than Michelle Obama would be. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, they put her face on the cover of that book. Like, it was everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people read that book. Did you finish it? Look, I bought it. <laughs> I saw the cover. I mean, I did a panel discussion on that book. I read enough <laughs> to participate. Yeah. I already had good feelings about Michelle. You know, I didn't need to be sold on her. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't need to read 800 pages of her Wikipedia. Okay, but I think we can eliminate Michelle Obama. I think we can eliminate all the athletes. I disagree. I disagree. Elon Musk also, I think, is eliminated. And he's not from here anyway. He's not even from here, so forget about him. My mom definitely doesn't know who that man is. Yeah. So that leaves us with four people. Donald Trump, Barack Obama, Beyonce, Taylor Swift. So we're canceling the Kardashian Wests. <laughs> yeah, Kim Kardashian. I feel like she has to be included too. She has a level of fame that I think I underestimate. Mm. And I'm going to try to be as objective as possible with this. Okay. Okay, so Donald Trump, first on the list. Yeah. Of the people on the list, he has been famous the longest. He has had many different types of fame. He was known for being a real estate tycoon. In the 80s, Trump was one of those people who was almost famous for being famous. He was. And I think people in New York City, you know, people who were more activist-minded and people who were more just close there knew of him as also being like this racist, this mm -hmm. misogynist or whatever. But for people who weren't as familiar with him, it was just, oh, Donald Trump, this amazing businessman, blonde hair, talks a lot of shit, you know, is friends with a lot of athletes and entertainers. That was his status. And then The Apprentice happened. And made him one of the most famous people on TV. And then his motherfucker was elected president. As a result of his success from The Apprentice, apparently. As a result of that, and also as a direct result of the next person on the list, Barack Obama being president. <laughs> and the, the pushback, the, the reaction to that was so severe in America that they elected this motherfucker to lead us. And he might be our president again. So, I mean, are not Barack and Trump like on the same tier of famous, like what would make one edge the other out? Like once you become president, isn't that uh, like basically everyone of a certain age within this country is aware of who you are situation? I agree with you. I think that they are on the same tier of fame, but I will give the slight nudge, the slight edge to Trump right now because he is more relevant right now and I think that even for people who aren't interested in politics, they may know of Trump because of TV or because of being in movies and being friends with Mike Tyson and being on Method Man albums. Like, do you, he was on a Method Man album. <laughs> I wonder if Meth regrets that. So between Trump and Obama, I think Trump edges him out a bit. Because of relevancy. Yes. So relevancy can make you yes. even more famous. And the thing is, we're trying to chart you a path <laughs> for this also. So, you know, 
I want you to sell as many books as possible. <laughs> yes. So, you know, you might need to be president. Me? Never that. <laughs> I'm not being president, and I'm most definitely not being the first black woman president. <laughs> Let somebody else break through that glass ceiling. Okay, so next, and let's just do it this way. We have Taylor Swift, we have Beyonce, we have Kim Kardashian. Well, I think Kim Kardashian is probably the easy one to kick out of that group if we're talking Taylor, Beyonce, Kim. Yeah. Okay. All right. Bye, Kim. <laughs> I'm sure there are people who know who Beyonce is and don't know who Kim Kardashian is, but I don't know if there are people who know Kim Kardashian is and don't know who Beyonce is. Correct. I agree with that assessment. Okay. So Beyonce, Taylor Swift. I mean, I don't know if I can see around my bias on this one. Like, <laughs> like I'm a ride with Beyonce on this. I mean, I guess hypothetically, there might be people who know who Taylor Swift is, but doesn't know who Beyonce is, even though they've both been kind of like the biggest news story of the summer. And I saw a lot when I went to the Beyonce concert, I saw a lot of repeat outfits from the Taylor Swift concert. So. That might be why she instated a dress code. Hmm. Okay. Fresh fits only. <laughs> Beyonce and Taylor, I feel like are on like the same kind of stratosphere in terms of fame. I would actually give the slight nudge to Taylor Swift, though. Is it because of her new relationship? She's crossed over into like sports awareness? I don't think that that has made her more famous. I think that that is actually proof of her fame mm. where she starts dating an NFL player and like the fucking the Empire State Building <laughs> just had a whole like light color scheme based off of Taylor Swift's condiments while eating chicken fingers. It's that. Is it that or is it like that she's a white blonde woman and this is America? Well, that also, you know, the fact that she's white and blonde, tall, young, whatever. All of that matters. Like, I think that if we're talking about, like, fame here in America. It's like the MTV Music Video Awards all over again. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, this is no, this is not a conversation about whose art is better or who, sure. you know, or, and, and I think that Beyonce actually means more to her fans than Taylor Swift does to hers. Ooh, that's an interesting argument. Yeah. I think the level of importance and the level of like passion that people have for Beyonce. And it isn't just a healthy relationship. It is an actual like, I just really want to see this person succeed. This person's music has just helped me get through things and helped me just think of different things about myself and about how I exist in the world. And I think that that connection with her fans is on a different level than Taylor Swift's connection with her fans. Now you got me flip-flopping, though, because I don't know if that's true. Like, I feel like Taylor Swift's fans do have a deep emotional connection with her. They grew up with her. They watched her go through all that stuff with her label and, like, lose the rights to her music. Like, you know, I'm a Beyonce fan. My neighbor on the other side here is a super mega Taylor Swift fan. Like, I live in a duplex. And I know, I know in my core, she feels the same way about Taylor that I feel about Beyonce. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I'll, I'll put it this way. Like, I know a lot of people who don't listen to any music other than Beyonce right now. For sure. They don't fuck with anyone else. Like, if Beyonce is not releasing albums, they're just not listening to new shit at all. And I don't, does Taylor have that with her people where 
they're fans of Taylor Swift and no one else. <laughs> right. That's interesting. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I think that they probably have a few other artists on their playlist. Yeah. And again, I'm speaking from a place I obviously know more about Beyonce fandom and more about Beyonce than I do about Taylor Swift. Sure. But I still, again, all this considered, I still, when we're talking about famousness today, I think Taylor is a little bit more famous. So Taylor's more famous, but Beyonce is more beloved. I think I can live with that, you know? Boom. This is why I get writers on the show. (laughs) So you could just come up with just the pithy, perfect summation of a thing. You're a writer too. (laughs) I was just riffing off of what you started. You know, I was revised. I was editing. Boom, boom, boom. (laughs) Now we're down to the championship, and that is Taylor Swift versus Donald Trump. Who is more famous? Okay. Well, when you think about people like Taylor Swift's parents and grandparents and great pappy's age, like those people probably know who Donald Trump is, but they probably don't know who Taylor Swift is. You know, like they probably have like some vague sense, but they don't know her like they know Trump. They didn't go stand in the cold to vote for her. Yeah, but those people's grandchildren, nieces, nephews, are more likely to know who Taylor Swift is, I think. And there are more of them because, you know, a lot of the grandpappies are dead (laughs) now. (laughs) And there are just more young people, you know, who will be able to, oh, yeah, that's Taylor Swift. Or, oh, yeah, that's Taylor Swift's music. And, you know, maybe in the politics, maybe they're not in the politics and might know who Donald Trump is, but definitely know who Taylor Swift is. So you basically have a generational, like, who is bringing more numbers to the table? Well, there is some overlap there, though, because remember in Taylor Swift's, maybe you don't remember this. I didn't watch it. I saw the clip, though, where Taylor's talking about how she feels like she needs to speak out against Donald Trump. And then this past week, Trump, maybe even just yesterday, actually, Trump was asked for his commentary on Taylor's relationship. And he said, I hope they're happy, maybe together, most likely not together. Um, So... So because they've both commented on each other, their audiences may or may not be like equally aware of the other party. And I think that that quote actually gives the edge to Taylor Swift because I feel like if it were if it were anyone who Donald Trump felt like was below him in a level of prominence or influence, he would have gone in a bit more knowing who he is. He would have been nasty. He would have said something really insulting. Sure. But because this is a woman that is more popular than he is and could even, I don't know if she has the potential to help sway anything, but he obviously respects how massive she is. Yeah. And she at least thinks that she would have the power because that's what the whole conversation was about, whether or not she should speak out and like what the potential backlash would be because of everything that happened with the chicks. Um so, yeah, okay. I could I could see it. Taylor Swift more popular than Donald Trump. We use a very scientific method. You know, I'm proud of us. I mean, her face isn't on the front of a book, but it's fine. I'm very proud for how we got there, how we got through the answer. We actually looked at the data. We tried to be objective. We used, you know, different points and different parts of the argument. Again, I am just so pleased about how this turned out. I'm a little curious, though. Like, the letter writer, I wonder 
who them and their friends were debating. I feel like that might be age dependent. I feel like someone who is older will probably say one of the politicians like Trump or Obama. But they could be like, you know, Travis Scott, most famous person in America. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us, tell us about this book. Yeah, so The Heartbreak Years is about dating as a woman of color in Southern California in my 20s. And it's set against the backdrop of the Obama years. So basically, my high school sweetheart and I moved to Orange County to house sit for his grandparents. And after six years of dating, six months in California did us in. Wow. So at 23, I had to learn how to date as an adult. And as I was trying to like figure that out, our nation had just elected its first black president. So suddenly we were in flux. We're talking about race, sex, gender, consent, class. We're talking about all of these things differently. And as it turns out, dating is the perfect vehicle to like interrogate these beliefs because it cuts across all of them. Wow. Okay. And I I saw a review of your book, or it might have been a profile where they mentioned how your first line was amazing. Was that the salon? The piece in salon? Maybe. So the first line is 2008, great year for Obama, trash year for Minda. That first line is a hook and it gets you. Oh, thank you. I have this conversation with college students and people who are interested in writing, particularly people who are interested in writing personal essay or memoir. And it's like, okay, how much do you include? How much of your own experience do you include? And there's not really a science to it. You just have to determine, okay, what fits the story? What can I include that will also allow me to exist in the world too? Because you still, if you're writing memoir, it involves real people. And it's like, well, I still have to be a person off the page. And so I guess what was your decision-making process in terms of what to include and what not to include? Yeah, I think it's like a case-by-case, chapter-by-chapter thing and also revision-by-revision. There was an essay that I drastically cut and changed towards the final revision of this book because ultimately I decided that it was more somebody else's story and dealt with some very challenging things that had happened in their life that I was kind of like tertiary to and shaped a lot of me as well. But ultimately, I was like, I don't want this person or any of the other people involved have to like relive any of these things or question them a decade later. Sometimes it came down to like what best serves the narrative. And then sometimes it came down to, you know what, actually, I'm not comfortable or ready to tell this story yet. And I think this is something that Kiese talks about a lot. And so, you know, you can watch his career once he released Heavy and all the interviews and conversations he had to have after that. And so, you know, or even just Roxanne Gay when she put out Hunger. And so just kind of knowing that, hey, I'm a Black woman writer. People are probably going to toe the same sorts of lines, ask the same sort of questions. So am I going to be ready to, like, answer those questions or, like, answer them with grace? Obviously, I'm not as famous as either one of those people, but it helped as a framework. The Heartbreak Years, available wherever books are sold. Please cop it. Please read it. Please support. It was a great book. I'm on book tour, so you can look at the schedule on Instagram at Minda Honey. Thank you so much for coming through. Thanks so much for having me. This was fun. Again, just want to thank the homie Summer Lee, Minda Honey, coming through. Great conversation, great guests, great topic, great people. 
Thank you all, too, for coming through again. It could have been anywhere else in the world, but you chose to be here today at Stuck With Damon Young. Also, you can find Stuck With Damon Young wherever you get your podcasts. But if you're on the Spotify app, there are lots of interactive questions, answers. Go to it. Knock yourself out. Have some fun. Tell a friend. And again, if you have any questions about anything whatsoever, hit me up at DearDamon at Crooked.com. All right, y'all. See you next week. <laughs> Stuck with Damon Young is hosted by me, Damon Young. From Crooked Media, our executive producers are Kendra James and Madeline Herringer. Our producers are Ryan Wallerson and Morgan Moody. Mixing and mastering by Sarah Gibble-Laska and the folks at Chapter 4. Theme music and score by Taka Yasuzawa. And special thanks to Charlotte Landis. And from Spotify, our executive producers are Lauren Silverman, Neil Drumming, and Matt Schultz. Special thanks to Leslie Guam and Crystal Hall-Stressler.